are two men who ply their trade mainly in Europe, but have their eye on one of America's biggest prizes. One of them is American, Olympic ski champion turned racing owner Bodie Miller. He owns a piece of fast and accurate. And jockey Christophe Soumillon, Belgian-born and French-raised, he'll pilot the Irish-born, Dubai-raised Thunder Snow. Bodie Miller and Christophe Soumillon join us next here on In The Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on the Pink Podcatcher app on your phone. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Where do people who live in Honolulu go for vacation? I mean, think about it. They're already in one of the most naturally beautiful and wonderful places in the world. Well, what do you do when you're an athlete who's literally and figuratively reached the mountaintop in your sport? Where do you go? Bodie Miller is the most successful male alpine ski racer in American history. He's won six Olympic medals, one of them gold in 2010 in Vancouver, I know, I was there. He then returned from a near-certain retirement to nail one more memorable bronze in Sochi in 2014. But once he basically finished letting gravity pull him down mountains on the razor's edge of disaster, Bodie Miller needed something different to do. His first new venture was starting a family. Remember, this is the guy who for a long time subscribed to the Gene Simmons philosophy of life. Now, Bodie Miller and his wife former pro volleyball player Morgan Beck, have two children, including a daughter born right around the Breeders' Cup last November. Miller also has two older kids from prior relationships as well. But still, Miller needed something else. Well, it was back in 2005 that Bodie Miller went to the Kentucky Derby and met a sandy-haired trainer from California you might have heard of, Bob Baffert. Next thing you know... Bodie Miller's talking about entering horse racing. Now the champion who won his sport's biggest event in Austria is looking to take American horse racing's most coveted prize as a part owner of an admitted long shot. Fast and accurate takes the lead as they turn for home in the 46 renewal of the spiral stakes. And it's fast and accurate who has the lead by a length and a half through from between horses, Convict Pike is gaining, and down the center, here comes Kitten's Cat, they have a 16th of a mile still to go, fast and accurate, still up top, Convict Pike lunging to the inside, Kitten's Cat to the outside, Blue Lids Traveler along the rail, fast and accurate, wins the spiral stakes by almost a length. Don't be fooled though, Bodie Miller's not just dropping in as some celebrity owner. And we'll get into all of that as we welcome into In the Gate the only man to win five alpine ski races in each of the sport's five disciplines, and now thoroughbred owner, Bodie Miller. I figured, you know, if you were going to buy into a derby horse, it probably would have been with the guy who named his son after you, but his best shot, Mastery, was hurt after winning the San Felipe. Had you thought about buying into Mastery before he got hurt? Well, and the other challenge is Bob has the biggest budget of any horse trainer on the planet, probably. So 
when you buy into <laughs> one of Bob's <laughs> horses, you got to be willing to to dip pretty deep into your, um, you know, and, and that's also, it's a unique thing. I mean, if people have a, an owner, I mean, of course, you know, Bob doesn't own American Pharaoh. Bob doesn't, you know, so you're not talking to Bob, you're talking to, you know, owners. And, and while Zayat is, is a, is a good guy and I get along with him and I get along with Kaleem, who's another one of his and Mike Pegram and that whole group, they're not the kind of guys who like to take late entrance, you know, when they've done all the hard work and taken all the risk and they have a horse in the Derby you know, to, to, to let people into the group. And, you know, it, it's just, it's just not really the normal situation in the business. In this case, Dr. Hansen is a, you know, he's a, a kindred spirit and a really, you know, an exciting and, and sort of unique owner is <laughs> one of the terms probably to use. And, and, you know, he, we own Enhanced together as well. And so, you know, and he's, he's really kind of got a unique sort of perspective and, and uh, attitude about letting people buy into to things like this. He really likes to share the, the excitement. Yeah, for those who don't remember, it was right around when we started this podcast in 2012, and Dr. Kendall Hansen, who was a physician in the Cincinnati Turfway Park area, owned the eventual two-year-old champion, Hansen, a gray horse whom he had this fascination about painting his tail blue, which he did before a race in West Virginia. Don't tell me you're going to let him do that to fast and accurate. No, <laughs> he got he got a stiff rep- reprimand for that, but... Um, but he is, he's a, he's a nonconformist. He's a guy who kind of goes his own way and has had, you know, some really great success in the sport. And it's really cool to see, you know, everybody wants a, a superstar, uh, horse, and then everybody wants to see their, their success story turn into a stallion. And in this case, um, Hanson has done a, a phenomenal job for, for, for the doctor of putting out runners, you know, just the attitude, the confirmation, um, the speed. I've been really impressed with, with what Hanson's been able to do. And, and I think everyone else is going to jump on board in the next couple of years. Now you bought a Maryland farm at the Fairhill training center in Maryland, the place where Graham motion is based among others. What made you decide to go there? You know, I, I, I believe that there's not really an effective way to train a thoroughbred at a racetrack. I just think you're, you're so limited with what you can do. It would be attuned to, um, you know, to training a, an Olympic swimmer in a hot tub. I just don't really see how you could effectively do it. So Fairhill, you know, has an amazing opportunity in terms of a broad spectrum, broad array of things that you can you can do with your animals and, and a lot less restrictive and, you know, the animals can be turned out. You can sort of change their, their daily habits or lifestyle a little bit. And I think that can all be really positive if it's done correctly. And, um, you know, and it has access to all the East coast tracks. You're not, you know, you're not tied in by the stewards to running at, at your spot is that, that I think can have a, and also a huge advantage. Well, considering you spent so much of your skiing career in Europe, I would think, New Market would have been the place you'd want to go where the horses live at the trainer's backyard, literally. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think they have a lot figured out in, in some of the other racing environments around the world. I really do. I think it would be to our benefit to take a hard look at what the rest of the world's doing and, and try to integrate some of those concepts that are successful in other places. But, you know, the U.S. is, is kind of, we go our own way as well, and I and I understand that. But, you know, for me, it's it's just exciting to start you know, start the process. So how is your operation coming along? It's been good. It's been, um, I view this as a, a very long-term project. I think, you know, I intend to do it for the rest of my life. And, um, with that in mind, I'm not, you know, jumping too far into it, um, too quickly. I think there's a huge educational process and a learning curve that I'll go through. And, and there's a vetting process 
for people in the industry that I trust and want to work with. And so it's been really, it's been really good. We had a, you know, we've had, we've had a, a lot of winners. We've had some of the usual setbacks, you know, early injuries and horses that just kind of that run and show some talent and then kind of go south on you. And it's been a challenge to just get the, my, my facility up and running, but it's been really exciting as it comes together right now we finally have the hyperbaric chamber up and running the treadmills up and running full full function and um i think you know this next this coming summer and fall i really hope to be able to showcase some of that stuff and be able to be able to move the needle a little bit because even just a a, a one or two percent or three percent increase in the performance of a horse is a massive leap and i think i think that is doable but i think you do need to change some things. I mean, you're not going to do that with a, with the standard program of 23 and a half hours a day in the stall and breathing every seven to 10 days, you know, and, and breathing five or six furlongs. You know, it's just, that's not the nature of improving physical um, performance. Well, the things you mentioned, notwithstanding, I know you've spoken a lot about incorporating science and technology into your operation. And usually when horsemen hear about technology, they cringe. What kinds of things are you looking to do? Well, it's mostly, I mean, it's all very common sense. That's what I think is, is kind of funny is that the ideas are all very proven, you know, very, <laughs> I guess it, there's no other word but proven. So horsemanship is obviously the antithesis of science. It's like, it's all intuition and gut feeling and it goes against everything logical in a lot of ways. And, and that's fine. And I, and I, I do respect where that's taken the sport. And I think there's a, there's a, it's a huge critical piece of the training program but there's a there's a whole part that you know is very easily easily demonstrated just by the fact that horses are getting hurt at such a remarkable rate. I mean, the injury injury rates and the performance is so stagnant over the last 40 years that that you just can't help but but you know get information from that. And you know, if you were to if you were to sort of ask anyone from the scientific world, you know, take a clear assessment of this and tell me what you can conclude with, with, you know, high level of certainty. Um, that's the stuff that I'm talking about. So, you know, it's just, it's very simple things, but, um, monitoring the horses, making sure you have a, a clear and, and accurate way of, of monitoring injuries and monitoring as they're getting wear and tear on their bodies, how they're recovering and then being able to put more work into them. I mean, they, you know, there's no, there's no question that that's really the, the root of, of the problem right now is that we just have them doing way, way too little. It, you know, it's like I said, it's the tune of, of training an Olympic swimmer in a hot tub or me training, you know, Michael Johnson or, or you say, you know, you say in bolts, probably a worse example because hundred yard dash sprinters are pretty raw. They're a bit like a quarter horse, but in the thoroughbred world, it, you know, it'd be like having a, a 400 meter runner, just sit in bed 23 and a half hours a day and then jog slowly around the track, you know, one time and go back to bed. And then once every seven to 10 days sprinting at 80% for a hundred yards. And then once every month have them roll out of bed and with very little warm up, go and, and do an 800 meter or 400 meter sprint at full gas. It's just that that is, is a hundred percent an analogy to what is happening in the horsemanship world for the most part right now. And that's, that's a, it's a really easy way to, to hurt animals. Olympic ski champion Bodie Miller is with us here on In The Gate. You know, you obviously, as you know, had a bit of a reputation for staying out until all hours of the night. In the thoroughbred business, your old bedtime is when the day begins. How prepared are you for that? 
Well, like I said, it's, you know, it, reputation and you can go by what you read in the papers or you can go by reality, you know, getting up early and, and, you know, working with your trainers and working with your riders is, is all common sense. But I also don't, I think that's ironically, that's not necessary either. There's zero reason why trainers need to get up at four o'clock in the morning. The reason they do it now is because the racetracks only allow you to train in the morning, but if you're not at a racetrack, um, and you do your training in the afternoon when, when the races are, or the evening when the horses race, you, you know, the circadian rhythm of any mammal is a critical piece of how they perform well. If I trained you in the afternoon your whole life and then woke you up at three in the morning and tried to ask you to perform at your best, you wouldn't perform at your best. It's been factually <laughs> just a fact of, of being a mammal. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that are, I think are kind of a little bit backwards about the way the system runs right now. Now, naturally, with all that you're talking about, a horseman can't do it alone. What's it like for a relative newcomer to put together a team of the right people? I would say that's that's the biggest challenge is just, as I said, the talk, you know, the backside talk. I mean, everybody in this industry has a couple people who, you know, have bad things to say about them. If you didn't do any business with anybody in the horse industry who someone had something bad to say about, you would have literally nobody to do business with. So it's a process of, of elimination and, and of learning about the people and, and sort of, you know, being disciplined and, and, you know, using experience and trying to figure it out. I think, you know, you need, you need a team exactly. And I think you, you need a, a group of people who understands what the goal is and who has the same aspirations. And that, that, that alone is hard enough, let alone to find the skill sets necessary to fill the different roles. Now, even as late as this past December, you were giving signs that your skiing career was not quite done and that there might be one more Olympic for you in 2018. Where does that stand? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I didn't I didn't officially retire and I haven't still officially retired, but I was pretty clear that, you know, I, I'm, I'm you know, going to be 40 years old in the fall and I've raced plenty and it's just like, it's just, actually, there's so many comparisons between alpine skiing and, and horse racing. It, it's it's actually uncanny, but I, I'm like, a, you know, a, a past champion who who won and, and raced, you know, and raced and raced and raced. And when you're seven or eight years old and you have a bunch of old nagging injuries, you just don't need to flirt with, with running uh, anymore. You know, there's a time when you, you just don't need to do it. So I, I knew when that, when that happened and of course, I still pushed it here and there a little bit to test it out, but I think it's pretty, pretty clear. It's pretty clear to me right now that that there's just no need for me to 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 take those risks anymore. What do you think it'll be like at the Derby as a player rather than as a spectator? Uh, I mean, I would guess that I, I'm probably as well equipped to understanding that as anybody just from what I've been through. But of course, it can surprise you. You know, I it's a it's a thrilling sport. Period. And you know, when when Bodie Meister got beat um down the stretch that was a pretty i was pretty um emotionally involved with that horse and uh, you know I, it's been the same with with several horses in the derby so you know it's uh, i'm excited to go and and see it i think this year is it's a unique opportunity it's it's a kind of a different field than i've seen in the past years well whether or not you do get back on skis let it be known that 40 really is the new 20 bodie miller will own <laughs> Fast and accurate in this year's Kentucky Derby. The best of luck and thanks for a few minutes. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break here on End the Gate, but when we come back, jockey Christoph Sumion prepares to pilot Thunder Snow in the Kentucky Derby. Don't go away.
back to Win the Gate. It's something of a myth that entrepreneurs are big risk takers. In fact, most are risk avoiders. They try to borrow spare parts or get financial backing for their ideas. You know, using other people's money. So let's talk about you. Are you afraid of failing, of taking a risk and having it blow up? So, what kind of risk are you willing to take? When considering this horse to win the Kentucky Derby, it's Thunder Snow alongside Epi Jarus. Thunder Snow, the Guineas winner. Epi Jarus from Japan, 200 meters out. Thunder Snow's running about. Epi Jarus battling back. Epi Jarus in front. Thunder Snow trying to raise another effort. Epi Jarus in front. Thunder Snow lunges again, and I think one of the last possible gaps. Thunder Snow in a photo in the Derby. Thunder Snow has now won three races in a row, going back to his final start last year in the Group One Criterium International at Saint Cloud in France. But in the 142 prior Kentucky Derbies, only one horse that was based primarily outside the United States has ever won: Canyonero II in 1971, the year I was born. Your opinion of Thunder Snow's chances might change a little after you hear the perspective of the man who's had the best seat in the house to watch him, jockey Christoph Sumian, who will be aboard for the big race on Saturday. Christoph Sumian joins us here on In the Gate. You've been Thunder Snow's regular rider, and he's run in top races throughout most of his career, making six starts as a two-year-old and then a pair this year. His final start last fall was the win in the Criterium at seven eighths of a mile. He won both of his starts in Dubai this year, including, of course, the UAE Derby. What has made the difference for him now winning three in a row? I think、uh, what gives him a, a big potential is、uh, his gate speed. He jumped always very well last year on, in the Criterium on seven furlong. He just jumped out very easily. The track that day was quite heavy, and he just galloped very easily in that ground. He's not a very big, massive horse, you know. He's、uh, very smooth, so. He could come out of that ground、uh, very easily. Now, speaking of gate speed, that is an all-important asset to have in the Kentucky Derby here in the United States. And you've ridden in the Kentucky Derby aboard Move to Hege a couple of years ago in the race that American Pharaoh's Triple Crown run started. Move to Hege finished eighth. What did you learn about riding in a race like the Kentucky Derby that will help you this time? I think it's very important to have a good draw and. Jump especially well out the gates because Muktaish、uh, was a bit scared when he heard the crowd screaming before the start and just get backwards when the gates open and after that when you miss two or three lengths out the gates in the start in these kind of races it's nearly impossible to make up ground especially these horses that didn't run so many times on the dirt so I think Thunder Snow is different his gate speed is much better he's more concentrate、uh, in the gates and it's、uh, more quiet. Muktaish was always a bit awake and、uh, and a bit nervous, so they are quite different、uh, on that type of things. But for the rest, yeah, he's a very easy ride, very smooth to ride. He doesn't need absolutely a, a cover, so he gets sometimes a little bit of kickback and he doesn't disturb him too much. So that's a good point. But for the rest, yeah, I think、uh, for the Kentucky Derby, you need a very fit horse, a champion as well, and they are horses that jump out the gate quite well. Without a doubt. Now, you talk about gate speed for the horse. What about gate speed for the rider? The pace of racing in 
Europe is so much different. Everybody kind of just walks out of the gate and saves all their energy for the end, where it seems like here in the States, everybody's jumping out of the gate and establishing position early. So not having ridden too many races in the States, though you certainly know how to do it, how concerned are you that you're not razor sharp for running here? Yeah, that's true, but I'm quite lucky because I've ridden everywhere over the world. Uh, in Dubai, especially, the dirt looks quite similar as American racing because also it doesn't make up too much ground uh, in the races, so you need to have a good gate speed as well. My record in Dubai are quite good on that, so that's no problem. I rode in Japan also. The dirt is different, but you need also to get good, good position most of the time. In Hong Kong as well, in Macau, I've ridden on many dirt tracks uh, where the gate speed is very important, so I'm not really aware. And in Europe, I always one of the quickest jockeys out the gate, so that's not really the, the the most important. I think it's you need the special horse to 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 make it. The horse can help the jockey a lot, and I just hope uh, Thunderstruck can go with me on that way. Because unfortunately, like I said, my only uh, occasion in the Derby with Mutaish was uh, getting a bit wrong. But the horse never jumped well, even in Dubai before. He missed always the kick, so that's also something uh, that gave us a hard time for the, the derby on that day. Now, you have spent a great deal of your career as a contract rider, where you sign an actual contract committing you to ride for an owner if the owner has a horse in a given race. That's how things used to be here in the States half a century ago. It's not really that way now. Now, you've been a contract rider for the Wildenstein family, but mainly for the Aga Khan. So how did you wind up on Thunder Snow, which is owned by Godolphin, and they have their own contract riders? Yeah, listen, uh, I think Said Bin Suror, since uh, last season, uh, was trying to get the, the jockeys he preferred for each horses. So he's not using the Godolphin jockeys anymore, uh, just when he wants it. So I think he, in England also, he was trying always the, the best jockeys available. And Jim Crowley was riding uh, Thunder Snow just before. And when he came over France, uh, on that day there was two rides, and uh, they just asked me if I was able to ride both horses. And I was free. My owner, uh, His Highness Aga Khan, didn't have any runners, so I was able to ride uh, Thunder Snow. And I was quite lucky because I won with him uh, very easily, so I think that was the, the, the starting point. Jockey Christoph Sumian joins us here on In the Gate. I don't know exactly how tall you are. But when I watch on TV, you look really tall. How does your height affect how you ride a racehorse? Uh, listen, I'm I'm not too tall. I'm one seventy-three centimeter. So for sure, for for a jockey, is not the average and normal size. But I feel quite well on the horses. It was a bit difficult when I was around 20, 22 years old because I was growing up quite fast. And for sure, to find your balance and everything, it was not very easy at that period. But now, I feel quite strong on the horse. And for sure, I ride a little bit longer than some small jockeys. But I think I have a good balance on the horse. And when you train every day and you're fit, I'm sure that, uh, yeah, it helps well on on a racehorse. You don't find too many top-level flat racing jockeys running here in the United States who have also run steeplechase races, as your father did and you have winning a couple of biggies in France. Now, besides the obvious that steeplechases have fences and water hazards to jump over, what are the differences for you as a rider between the two types of racing? It's a completely different world. I think, same as you speak about American football and soccer. You know, it's, it's, it looks quite similar because 
there is a horse and a jockey, but when you arrive on on the jump over the jumps, everything is really different. You need to to ride the horses on a different way, and uh, you need uh, some practice as well. But for sure, the most important is a lot of confidence because you know that on every chase you can fall and and hurt yourself. So you need to be very concentrated and and relax as well. So it's a completely different uh, approach, but. I did it when I was very young with some ponies, so I was very confident, and I, it's something that I like to do because my dad learned me when I was a kid how to jump with the horses. And yeah, I was just trying to do it because I want to feel some different uh, feelings. And uh, I was lucky; I just rode four races, and I won two Grade One races, so I was very lucky to to ride also for the trainer in, in France uh, over the jump. So it was quite easier than usual, actually. Christoph Sumiyam will pilot Thunder Snow in the Kentucky Derby. Thank you so much for a few minutes, sir. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Christoph Sumiyam and to Bodie Miller. They made the New York Yankees look like a Little League baseball team, and the Montreal Canadiens look like mites. When horse racing ruled American sport, they ruled the winner's circle, taking trophy collecting to mystifying heights. Calumet Park, based on Freewood Drive away from Keeneland, won eight Kentucky Derbies. No one has more. And two of them swept the Triple Crown. Whirl away in citation. Winning big was always at Calumet Farm's core. But it's been nearly half a century since a Calumet horse wore roses. There was an insurance scandal and then a bankruptcy. Now Calumet is run by Brad Kelly, a reclusive billionaire who changed the colors but retains the legacy. Calumet will send out hence the Sunland Derby champ, and if he wins, it'll feel like four years ago, when another stalwart empire, the Phipps Stable, won with Org. A Calumet win would set nostalgia lovers aglow. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on the Pink Podcatcher app on your phone. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. Remember to join us tomorrow for Handicapping the Derby, where we'll help you figure out who's going to win America's Most Famous race, but for now, that's in the gate. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you tomorrow.